Join me in reading from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, so what would you say is the greatest human virtue? What would you say it would be? Would you say it would be beauty or wisdom? Would you say it was success, power? What, what's, if you think of the greatest human vice, maybe it would be hate. What would be the greatest human virtue? I think most of us would probably say love. I mean, I think across the board. I, I don't think it's simply a Christian. I, I think all would say, oh, definitely the Christian though, right? I mean, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, or 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's incredible how important love is. Um, J.C. Ryle, a great preacher of the 19th century in London, said that love is the queen of the Christian graces. It's the queen of it, to love. Now, we know that our culture knows this. It, you see it splashed across all the, all, all the, the songs, for example. Some of the greatest songs the Beatles ever did in 1967 was, All I Need Is Love. All I Need Is Love. So, so this was written by John Lennon, and, and it was actually the first global telecast to 400 million people across 25 countries. And, and, and he wrote it kind of with a revolutionist in mind, in the sense of wanting to give something that the message is made simple and clear so that all understand it, right? So let me just read you part of it. Love, 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 
You got it. Love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. Nothing you can say that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love, love is all you need. And that's great. I love the song. He never defines love. He never tells us what love is. He's just telling me all I need is love. But what is love? Well, thankfully, Paul describes it for us. He describes it for us in this text. In this series of exhortations, more than 20, Paul's going to describe for us what love is. He's going to describe it. Now, I admit that taking on a passage this long, with all those exhortations, this is what, what preachers call homiletical suicide. I mean, this is terrible. To give to you 20 things to think about, to consider, and to meditate on. It's kind of like if you go to the golf instructor, and he goes, okay, I'm going to show you how to hit the ball, and here's what you have to do with your head, here's what you have to do with your shoulders, and your arms, and your legs, and your feet, and here's what you have to do with... Yeah, and you go and try to hit the ball, you don't have a prayer. And, and so the way I'm going to try to explain this passage is this way. First, I'm going to give you the context, and then I'm going to just try to draw really a couple big points out of this and try to put everything in two buckets. So the context, I think you remember, is pretty clear. Paul has both delighted in and he's detailed for us the great mercy of God. Think about it. All of us went our own way. We've been rebellious. We haven't honored God, he says in chapter 3. In chapter 1, we haven't been grateful to God. We've lived many, much of our lives never even thanking him for the breath we have. And yet he has provided for us a son, a savior, an atonement, a sacrifice. So Jesus bears our sins. God's just. He punishes sin. We're going to see that. But our sin was placed on him and punished him. And through faith now, we have, uh, through faith we have peace with God. We're reconciled to God. Can you imagine we're given a new life in chapter 6? And we need that new life because chapter 7, we're still living in a world of sin. Chapter 8, we've been given the Spirit. Chapter 8, we've been promised that not even death will separate us from God. And then he finishes up in chapter 11 how he's going to bring all things to a fitting end. And we're all going to say to him be glory forever and ever. So in 11 chapters, Paul has made just abundantly clear God of the Bible is a merciful, kind God. Who saves? So then Paul pivots in chapter 12 and says, okay, what do we do? What do we do with such a God? So remember, the Christian's ethic is always driven by theology, understanding of God. And so how do we live? That's what Paul's going to answer in 12, really through 15. How should we live? Now, last couple of weeks ago, we found that he said, well, present your bodies to God. Be living sacrifices to him. You know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. He's saying that if we understand the mercies of God, we can live in the will of God. And Paul now is about to tell us what the will of God is. We learned last week, the will of God is to what? The first thing is to think rightly of yourself, not to think too highly. And, and, and then he said it's also not just to think rightly, but to serve gladly. We talked about the gifts being given to serve one another. This is the will of God. This is how we live in light of his mercies. Well, today, it's going to be love genuinely. 
love genuinely. That this is part of God's will for the church, that we would love genuinely. Now, that's verse 9. So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see verse 9 is kind of like casting its shadow over the rest of this passage. So in verse 9, he's saying to love genuinely. In verses 10 to 16, he's saying love genuinely in the church. So in 10 to 16, it describes how we love each other in the church. In verses 17 to 21, he's explaining how we love outside the church. So one's inside the church, one's outside the church. So that's how we're going to boil all these exhortations down. So first, let's explain what love is, right? Because our culture thinks love is kind of a, a sentimental thing. It can kind of be a goosebumps, your hair gets raised on your arm. It can tend towards a little schmaltzy maybe. That's the way the world looks at love. But the word that Paul uses actually is a conditionless love. It's a deliberate love. In fact, it's a godlike love. But it, God is the, is the subject of that word throughout the book of Romans until now. Only one other time. It's always God's love that it's describing. But now he takes God's love and he says, this is how you are to love. Because we've been made in the image of God. We've been delivered. So now we are to love like God loves, like a God-like love. Now what he says is this love is to be genuine. And that word is literally unhypocritical. It's to be authentic. It's to be sincere. In other words, it's not a pretend love. You, you know what I mean by pretend. You know what I mean by hypocrisy, right? So hypocrisy is when I go and I act like a Christian when I'm with Christians. And I go, and when I'm not with Christians, I don't really act like a Christian. So, so I, I kind of shift. My color changes according to the group I'm with. We do the same thing with marriages. We may put forth this image that our marriage is in all, all in order, when really it's quite toxic and, and quite, you know, we have great problem. But we're not going to show anybody that. We're going we're to put on a pretend face. That's what he's saying here is when we love, it shouldn't be pretend love. So we shouldn't be loving people and acting nice to them and being real sweet. But then when we get in the car to go home, we begin to torpedo them or say critical things about them or gossip about them. You know, that's a pretend love. You know, when you go up and you make much of a person, but you really don't like them. And, and you really let that be known to other people that weren't with you when you were all nice to them. It's kind of like a Judas love. You know, Judas goes up and kisses Jesus right before he sends the authorities to go arrest him. It's a Judas-like love. We, we don't want to pretend love. He's saying love with a genuine love. And, and, and this genuine love is going to discriminate. Notice what it says when he says, let your love be genuine. Then he says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. In other words, the type of love that we are to exercise involves a tough love. We have to say sometimes the hard things. We have to speak to people when they're doing things that are hazardous to their own soul. So who, who among us would think that the mother was a good mother, that the child was running around the house with a pair of scissors because she just wants to, and she's going to cry if she doesn't get her way? And should we love her and say, well, we don't want to make her sad. We don't want to disappoint her. No, you take the scissor away. Would you kick and scream and fuss? Perhaps. But you love her. You don't want her to get hurt. And so this abhor what is evil. When we love people, it means that we are promoting good, helping them to hold fast to what is good, but we're also confronting things that we know will be bad for those that we love. So when you look at your love, 
And the love that you have in your marriage, maybe, or the love that you have in your, in your parenting, or the love you have in your home. Is it a genuine love? Is it a discerning love? Does it discriminate between the good and the bad? Is your love marked by self-interest? A lot of times we love people because of what they can do for us. If a person's in a position to help me along in life at a spot that I'm stuck in, might I be more loving to them to make them more receptive to give to me what I think I need? That's not a genuine love. It's not an authentic love. So what would you say about yours? Do you love people with a genuine love? I think a lot of us probably are feeling kind of uncomfortable. And we do know those things when we do talk in the car about the person that we just said hello to. I think we have to repent. This might be a call for Christian repentance. I mean, remember now, the idea of repentance in the Bible, you know, when Jesus came and announced that the kingdom of God has come, he says, repent and believe. So we enter the Christian faith through repentance, through confessing our sins and putting our faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him to save alone. But repentance continues in the Christian faith. I mean, the Christian repents, right? You repent because Christian sins. We struggle with sin. I struggle with sin every day. We are called to repent. Maybe this is what we need to repent over. Maybe the love that we've had for people has not been genuine. It's been tinged. It's been tainted. It's been marked by much self-interest or perhaps hypocrisy. Then repent. God is faithful. He's just. He will cleanse you from that unrighteousness. So Christian, enjoy the freedom you have to be forgiven of your sins and enjoy the sweetness of it. Uh, but some of you may be thinking, yeah, but how do I love the person I don't love? <laughs> how do I love the person I don't like? How do I, how do I love the person that's kind of a jerk, uh, th that I just don't like them? I, you know, I can't be hypocritical, you told me, so I won't love them at all. Maybe that's the path. Well, I, don't, I don't think that's the Christian answer. I think the gospel allows us. Remember now, the nature of love is not feeling. It's not what you feel. It's what we do. Of course, feelings are associated with that, but feelings are often temperamental and are going in directions that aren't always aligned with truth. So we do love is what we do. We do it. And, and, and as we do it to those that we don't like, repent of your attitude. Ask God to forgive you. Consider how God loved you when you weren't lovable. I mean, think about it. I mean, was God hypocritical when he loved us when we were unlovable? No, he was being what? Gracious and kind. Jesus himself says, love your enemies. How can we love our enemies if we have to feel love for them? They're an enemy. You don't feel love for them. But we're called to do love and ask for forgiveness for the mixed motives that I have and the tainted spirit that I have. God, I, I'm going to do love and obedience to you. Grant me feelings and love for them. So that's really what he's driving at here. In verse 9, he's simply saying that God's will is that we love genuinely. And, and that's how we relate as a Christian to both the church and the world. So let's look at how we relate to the church first. This is how we relate to one another. Look with me in verse 10, because he says love. He says it, that word really is a devoted love. He says, love one another with a brotherly affection. So the, the, the first mark, remember now, I'm trying to describe what John Lennon did not. So what does love look like? It looks like a genuine love that is, that is discriminating between the good and the bad. Well, then how can I identify it? It's kind of a nebulous. Well, here's how it looks in the church. It looks like devotion. You are devoted to one another. 
And, and the words he uses when he says love one another, uh, it, it's, um, it's a devoted love. And then he uses brotherly affection, which is our word for Philadelphia. He's using this familial language, the language of a family. In other words, you know the love we have with our own kids or our own spouse. We have a unique love with them. So when your little child comes up, and they come running up to you calling you daddy, you have a love for them. It's, it's not like the neighbor kid also comes running up to you. You don't not love him, but there's that unique bond because they're your family. My mother used to say it this way. She would say, hey, blood is thicker than water. You stick with your family. And that's what we do. You stick with your family. And, and that's what he's saying here, that within the Christian community, our love look like, looks like devotion, that we're devoted to one another. And here's the unique thing. The church is creating a new family. Our families are noted by biology and by shared blood, not the church. We don't share the same blood in the church. We share the same gospel. And so the gospel is what brings us together. That's why I'm closer to some of you than some of my extended family that don't know God and that don't love Christ, I have deeper bonds of connection with you. Uh, so, so that's what he's saying here. Is we are devoted to one another. And the devotion that we have for one another should be meted out with outdoing one another in honor. Look at the second half of verse 10. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, when he says showing, show deference, consider them of great value. So Paul says that he uses the same word when he talks about you know, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, um, consider others more important than yourself. Have you done that this week? Have you considered someone more important? Have you showed them honor? Have you put their needs and, and their desires above yourself? And this would have been revolutionary in a Roman world. A Roman world was hierarchical. And so in this Roman church, you had members of the church who were actually members of Caesar's household. And then you had migrant workers from the field, just day laborers. And he's saying to those two parties, show each other honor, treat each other with greater respect. I mean, that, that's really, really incredible, isn't it? Who have you honored this week? Where have you this week just said, you know what? I want this. They want that. I'm going to move towards helping them reach that. I'm going to honor them by that. You know, we are not more, we are not mere humans, as C.S. Lewis says. You, many of you know this quote from The Weight of Glory, but it bears hearing again. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. I mean, you've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. He says, we are everlasting splendors to the church. So that's the devotion that we, that what does love look like in the church? We're devoted to one another. Hey, in a family, you get in a squabble, you get your horns locked up, you don't leave. You stick it out, you fight through it. Marriages, you stick it out, you fight through it, you know that. You've been married five weeks, you're going to lock your horns, you stick it out. That's what we do. You're devoted to one another. But not only that, you also persevere. Look with me at 11 and 12. In 11 and 12, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I, I mean, you see this language. A, a, a genuine love 
is not passive. It's not easygoing in the sense of it's unengaged, it lets things happen. That word fervent means burning. It is burning with zeal to serve. It's patient in tribulation. It's hoping when circumstances are not hopeful. It's constant in prayer. Now, when you read those verses, I think you'd agree with me that it almost sounds like our relationship with God. But it's in the context of this, you know, church type of relationship. And why is that? Well, one argument would be that he's telling us that we need to behave in a way, we need to be fervent in spirit, we need to be constant in prayer, we need to be diligent even in the midst of uh, tribulations so that others around us would see faith in action and be encouraged. Uh, in other words, uh, Carol and I have long seen in ministry that much of the suffering God has led us into has not just been for us, but it's been for you. You get to watch. What does faith look like when you're in the midst of trial? Uh, for many of you, as you have endured trial and struggle, you've buried your loved ones in faith. I've grown. I mean, I, I got to tell you, seeing you persist in tribulation, remaining faithful, we see all these folks going off the, the reservation in terms of leaving the faith. You know, to see a person persevere in the faith in the midst of trouble, that's what builds my faith. That strengthens me. It's a way of loving me, really. You know, we used to think, well, back in my charismatic days, you know, we we're always looking for miracles, everything, to prove God's power and existence. And, and we saw him and we were thankful for him, no doubt about it. But perseverance, enduring in faith, in the midst of tribulation, I think does more to help the health of the church than the miracle does. Because it shows something that you cannot. It doesn't go away. You see someone suffering and they're faithful to the end. That, I think that's what he's driving at here. That's the responsibility we have to each other. That we, we love one another so much, I want to walk out the faith well for you. I don't want to fall down. don't want you to fall down. I want us to walk it out well together. That's how, we, that's how we love one another. But also love has a very practical import. Look with me at 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That word contribute is fellowship or share in, share in the, the needs of others. This may be emotional need, it may be a financial need. I, I just want to look at it from the financial standpoint. Many of us have wealth, we have abilities. We are to share. Now this church is a very sharing church, I'm thankful for that. But that's what we're trying to do. This is a way of showing love. Those that have needs, we want to share with them. We want to participate in their struggles by giving to them what we have to the degree that it serves them. John, to, his, um, to the church, the first letter, he says, But if anyone has the world's gifts and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So there is that place. Now, I know that you cannot meet every need that you're aware of. But I don't want to use that as an excuse to not meet the needs that I am aware of and that I can meet. You know, so there are some things that I am able to bring to bear. It may cost us, we may have to sacrifice, but can we not? That's a way of showing love to one another. But not just meeting their needs. Notice what he says. He says, seek to show hospitality. And that word hospitality means uh, a love for strangers. So there is a place 
where our love looks like we're engaging with strangers, perhaps bringing them into our home, as John speaks about in his first letter, feeding them. You know, Carol and I have done more ministry around the kitchen table than we have than I've ever done in the office. I, I mean, it, it is amazing how bringing strangers in, bringing people in I don't know that well, and sharing a meal with them, having coffee with them, it's a wonderful way to encourage faith. It's a great way of showing love. Now, some of you may think, I couldn't do that. I just don't feel comfortable having people in my home. That's fine. I, I, I understand that. But maybe a way to show love to strangers is just go to meet someone in the church that you don't know. You know, when the church is dismissed, we tend to go to those that are just like us as opposed to going to a face that we don't recognize. And oftentimes we do that because we get scared. Because sometimes you'll go up to somebody and say, hey, I haven't met you, my name's Tom, and uh, I haven't seen you here before. And the person may kind of, in a snarky way, well, I've been here for a year, I go to the other church, or I go to the other service. And it's like, well, first off, if you do that, don't do that anymore. It really is off-putting, it really is. But if they do that, just say, well, I'm glad we finally got to meet. It's been a year and I've really missed you, or something like that. But the point of it is, you move towards people that, that you don't know. And, and that's, that's, that's unique to the Christian. It's a way of showing love, is by drawing close to people that you're not familiar with. And you know how people walk in, they don't know the place. Maybe you're new here today. I know how you feel. You walk, because I feel that way. You walk into a church, you don't know anybody. Where do I sit? Where's an open spot? Should I sit close? Should I sit far away? And, and you're nervous that nobody's going to come up to you, and you're nervous that people are going to come up to you. And, and so you don't know what to do. And, and so we can help by loving people, by showing hospitality that way. Uh, okay, the fourth way of what genuine love looks like is just in indiscriminate love. In other words, there's no partiality to our love. He says, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. In other words, if a person is suffering and you have a connection, go up and weep with them. Now, I think weeping with people is easier because you can think in your mind, well, if I was experiencing all the pain they were, well, then it, it, it's easy to feel bad or it's easier to feel bad. But you do want to enter their pain. You don't want to come and try to wipe it away or try to give a clean and easy answer to it. You want to suffer with them. And rejoice with those who rejoice. That's different now. I think rejoicing with those who rejoice is harder because you may be asked to rejoice with things that they're getting that you want but don't have, like a husband or a home or a new job or a better situation in life. And they have something happen to them, and it's hard to rejoice with them. But what a sacrifice of love that is. I'm going to rejoice with them because I have God. And all of his promises, I'm going to rejoice with you. Uh, this indiscriminate love is not partial. You know, we live in harmony with all people, those who are different than us. It, 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 it identifies. It, it, it serves the lowly, it says here. It, it associates with the lowly. You know, the church is to be different from the world, and the world is drawn together around like things and sameness. Same color, same education, same background, same whatever social position. The way we genuinely love one another is when we cross those lines. So if you're a senior here and you've got some extra spending money and you don't have kids at home, take out some of the younger couples or take out a single person and ask them about the faith and move into their lives. You know, if you're 
if you're a student here, go home with the family and enjoy the family or, or let the parents go out for it. Get to know each other. This is what is indiscriminate love is when we're not just getting drawn to those who are just like us. We cross those demographic lines. Uh, so consider maybe in the next month, if you're a single, go home with the family. Have lunch with them. Invite yourself. Offer to bring a pizza. If you're a senior, Grab a student or grab a single. Take, I mean, these are ways that we can display a unique love. And here's why I say this. Because when Paul says a genuine love in verse 9, here's what it looks like in the church. This kind of love is what distinguishes us from the world. It makes us look different. Jesus said that in John 13. If you love one another, all men, all women will know that you're my disciples. Our distinguishing characteristics is that we have a love like God's love. And God's love is loving the unlovable and loving those that are different. And so this is a way to distinguish ourselves. But not just that, it's a way that confirms the reality of the gospel. Listen, you can preach up here. You can preach up here uh, and proclaim truth. But if the truth isn't lived out in the life of the saints, we give the non-Christian an ability to just dismiss the truth that's proclaimed. So in other words, there is, so Francis Schaeffer was a theologian, last century, died in the early 80s, and he made this point, he said, for a, for a church to function well in a world, it has to proclaim the truth. It can't soft-pedal the truth. It has to proclaim that men and women are sinners. They need to be saved by the grace of God through faith. It has to proclaim that truth but that God does love us and that he has sent us unto die for us. If that's the divine love preached, then the divine love has to be evidenced in the people. So the church becomes what's called the final apologetic to the gospel. We prove the gospel. If we don't love each other, then it's easy for the non-Christian to say, well, they're talking about God's love, but that's the way they treat each other? No, no thank you. I take a pass on that. So, so th that's the reason. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I do have to say that the church has failed at producing a culture of niceness that is not genuine love. We are often nice, but then we go home and tear each other's shreds. That has not served you well, and I'm sorry. The church has dropped the ball on that. We, we have done nice with nice. We haven't always done well with love. And, and, and I, I want to pray for us. I mean, I, I want us to be different. I really do want us to sacrificially love so that the gospel is seen. I understand the gospel now because I'm seeing this. And that's what's written in 1 John 4. God, no one has seen God, but God's love is perfected when you love one another. It's perfected, it's revealed. We all have to just take a quick inventory of our own soul. How can we do, because we all want to, I mean, the believer here, you want God's love to be revealed in your life. So that's how we love the church. That's genuine love. Verse 9 is plugged into the church 10 through 16. What do we do outside the church? How do we love people? How do we walk out God's will in our relationship with those outside the church? This is from 17 to 21. How do we deal with people that are different than us? How do we deal with people that look at politics differently, at cultural issues differently, at religious issues? How do we deal with them? Do we just ignore them? Do we just go to our own tribe and go to our own corner? No, Paul says not at all. If you were to sum up 17 to 21 in one word, it would be non-retaliation. We don't retaliate. Now listen, the people that we have differences with, usually we get opposition from. 
and that opposition can increase to ridicule and mocking and so forth. We don't know the situation that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a broad spectrum here. Uh, he's just speaking about those that we may be at odds with. Uh, so, so how do we not, because you know, Paul says four times, he says there in verse 14, do not curse. In 17, he says, do not repay evil. Uh, 17, do not avenge yourselves and don't overcome evil with evil. And, and the reason we don't come evil with evil is because if we overcome evil with evil, we just become evil. I mean, we're losing the battle. We don't overcome evil with evil. But that is intuitive to us. It is natural. It's a reflex. You don't have to tell a four-year-old that when his five-year-old brother takes his toy that he shouldn't take a swing at him or wrestle with him or fight over him. You don't have to teach a child about the law of lex talionis, take an eye for an eye. I want that toy. And so you don't have to teach him. But what Paul's saying to us is, no, the Christian who understands the mercies of God, who has been saved, they will not respond with retaliatory effort. So what do we do? Should we sit on our hands? Am I preaching just absolute pacifism? Am I just saying, well, you can't do anything about it. We don't care about justice as Christians. No, I'm not saying that at all. Not at all. Here's what Paul says to do. Look at me in 17. When you, and many of you have been injured. You've been hurt. People have treated you unfairly. In, in the, these are crazy things, so buckle up. Paul says, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul's saying that our response to the person who has brought injustice to us is to do good to them. It's to do good. Don't avoid them. No, insert your life into theirs and do good to them. Do something good that other people would say, hey, that's pretty good. Maybe it's a neighbor, cut their grass or help them on a project to have. Or maybe if it's a co-worker, maybe offer to take them out to lunch. But, but you are to do good to them. Something. This is how we defeat evil. Fighting fire with fire only increases the temperature of the fire. So we do good, but we don't just do good. And by the way, we bless when they curse. In 14, he says, bless. This isn't kind of a Southern, bless them, Lord, bless them. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I, I'm talking about we speak well of them. You know, the word bless there is good words, eulogy. We bless them. And th this is an area where all of us can be challenged in our Facebook usage. So I have an extended family, and I have people on both sides of the political aisle and in my family are both sides uh, of the cultural aisle. And what happens oftentimes is Facebook is a platform to just start lobbing grenades over the wall at the other. What Paul says is, bless those who curse you. Speak well of them. Speak well of them. You know, it's one thing to argue policy and maybe get heated. It's another thing to start moving off a of policy to character and that sort of thing. That's offline for us. We speak well of them. If someone criticizes you, you know, we don't want to send back the message kind of in a subtle rebuke and drop a few lines about them to kind of balance the scales. That's not the way Paul says to play it. But not only do we, do we speak well, do we do good for them, but we also live at peace with them. We try to live at peace. Now, you notice the integrity of Scripture. He says as much as you're able. Some people don't want to be at peace with you, and they're not going to be. But you can be in a posture of peace. You can be in a position of saying, I want to be reconciled to you. What must I do to be reconciled to you? Now, if they introduce some ideas, remember, you still have verse 9 that governs this verse. Verse 9 says, abhor what's evil and hold fast to what's good. 
Uh, so if, the, if truth has to be compromised, it gets sticky. You might need some counsel with other brothers and sisters. Uh, but what he's saying is, a, as much as it depends on you, you have to try to seek to make peace with people. Reconcile. Even if you have to find a place of agreement where you disagree. And then the last thing he says is, is in dealing with those outside the church, do good, live at peace, and also trust your injustice to God. Let the justice of God. In other words, put down the sense of injustice and let God pick it up. Now look with me in verse, um, in verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. So what he's saying here is this. He's not saying that as Christians, we are opposed to justice. He's not saying that. Next week, chapter 13, we're going to read about how we respond to the government. And the government has been given a sword to bring a measure of justice to the injustice of the world. It won't be perfect, but it's a foretaste of the perfect justice that will come. What he's saying here is speaking about uh, personal revenge, personal revenge. That you are to not seek. So if you have, and I imagine that many of us here at one point have been hurt by people. And there has been an injustice committed that has not been reconciled. Maybe it's even within your family. What do you do? Your body's screaming for justice. And what Paul's saying is, give it to God. God will bring a perfect justice in ways you cannot even imagine. The reason that we don't take personal revenge is because we don't make very good judges. But he's saying, leave it to God. Entrust it to him. Instead, you feed him and you give him drink. That's the way we take that person who's been unjust to us and we treat him as a person in need and we serve them. I think that's what he's getting at with the burning coals, this big debate about what that is. The oldest view of that would be that in so being kind to them, you'll shame them into a position of repentance and sadness. So I, I've used the example before. Sometimes I can, you know, if I come off with a harsh statement towards Carol and, and I say something sharp or I say something sarcastic, uh, she has this great way of, of saying, if, if you meant to hurt me by that, you did. Well, how do I feel? I feel lousy telling you. I, I mean, I, I do. I, I feel shamed. I, I'm ashamed of myself. I guess I did mean to hurt you, and I didn't want to hurt you, but I did hurt you. you know, there, there's a shame that leads to, I'm sorry. There's, and it's not a forced repentance. She's being kind to me by not bringing fire back to me like the fire I just gave her. You see the same thing with King Saul and King David. You know, King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he rejected the, by uh, disobedience to the Lord, rejected his kingship. And there's David. David's now the king that's being raised up, and Saul's trying to kill him. And David had two opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't do it. And so in 1 Samuel 24, Saul, at one point, again, by a reminder of David's kindness, he says, I have acted wickedly to you. You have acted kindly to me. You are a man more righteous than I. That's pretty incredible. We shame people into repentance. That's what we want. I, the other view is that, you know, we, we, want, we want to be nice to him so that God's really going to bring the hammer down later. And that seems to not work with the concert of the text or the tenor of the text, a non-retaliation. So here's how the gospel helps us here. 
you know, because I know that many of you right now are thinking, yeah, but this doesn't apply to me. This probably applies to Bill or Joe, but not to me. You know, we tend to look for loopholes when the texts are really, they seem like a steep hill to climb. We, the Christian here, has the gospel. And when I say that, I mean, you know how merciful God has been to you, how patient, how long he waited before he drew you to himself. You know that. You know that your sins have been forgiven. Your sins, that half of them you may have even forgotten by now, have already been forgiven by one who took them upon himself. And you know that he's going to come again one day, and he will right every wrong. Every injustice will be made perfect. You know that. And so by meditating, considering, marinating yourself in the gospel, you will be able to entrust yourself to a God who is holy and perfect in every way. And that's what I'm calling you to do. That, that whatever that injustice is in your mind right now, and, and it can be an ongoing injustice right now, it doesn't mean we don't speak truth. Remember, verse 9 says, abhor what's evil, hold fast to what's good. But we do it gently. We do it with words of grace. Now, if you're here, though, and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about an, another thing. You may be thinking about the injustices to you, but what about the injustices you've done? What about the things that you have brought to people's lives that have been unjust, that have hurt them? What have you done with that? See, the Christian, this is the beauty of Christianity, is I can admit intellectual honesty demands that I have been unjust to people. I'm sure I have, a thousand ways. Uh, but by faith in a Savior, I have one who has borne that, and God has brought judgment upon him. So justice has been served. And that's why Jesus says in John 5, that those who believe in the Father, those who believe in me, they've passed out of judgment into life. Justice has been done on my sins. I just didn't have to bear it. But, but if you're not a Christian, you will have to stand before God for the same injustices that you have done. And this is the hope of the gospel, that by faith in Christ, you can receive the free gift of salvation that God gives for those who repent and turn. But it does require you to humble yourself. And it requires you to say, God, I have failed and I am a sinner and I'm sorry. Please forgive me and please help me. So it requires that. So all of us are going to pin. You know, we're all kind of pinned in this last little corner. So in all these exhortations, here's what I want you to remember. We are called to love one another in this church with a genuine love. And we're called to love those outside the church with a genuine love. It'll look different in each case, but the call to love, a genuine love, is the same. Let's take a moment now and just silently confess, perhaps. Maybe you're convicted. Maybe your love has been shown to be shot through with self-interest or, or pride. Or maybe you just need help. You need grace to consider this. So let's take a moment and, and just silently speak to God about this, and then I'll, I'll pray for us in a moment.